0: everyone welcome to Ramdas here and now I'm Ragu Marcus and uh, we've got a great talk from Ramdas it's uh, it's actually from an article that he 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 reads most of the article or refers to it called what survives what survives death and i picked this because it is connected to this wonderful retreat that we're doing in Maui coming up uh, that uh, we're going to live stream on May 4th, 5th, and 6th, and it has got just uh, an incredible lineup. It's, the theme of the retreat is No Death, No Fear, which is from a Thich Han book. And uh, it features, of course, Ramdas and Krishna Dass, but Roshi Joan Halifax, Frank Ostaseski, who just wrote a fabulous book around death that came out about, oh, six months ago or so, who does a lot of work uh, with, uh, with people that are transitioning and people who are caretaking. And Robert Thurman is joining us for the first time in Maui, Many of you, of course, know uh, who Robert is, but if not, he's uh, very close to the Dalai Lama and is uh, just an incredible Buddhist scholar and also one of the most entertaining speakers uh, and Dharma talkers that uh, I've ever heard. And then, of course, uh, we have uh, myself and Duncan Trussell, who stir up the pot a little bit Uh, so uh, go to ramdas.org forward slash fearless and sign up for the live stream from maui may 4th through 6th it's free 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 so we do ask people to support of course uh, us being able to offer these things for free, these courses and uh, live streams and so on and so forth. So, Ramdas. All oh, right, so no death, no fear, which is what the course is, Buddha, uh, which is what the retreat stream uh, there is about. Buddha taught that there is no death, no coming, no going. When we understand that we cannot be destroyed, We are liberated from fear, which is why the URL is ramdas.org forward slash fearless. We can realize our true nature is truly the nature of no birth, no death. And in this talk, uh, Ramdas talks about this, and uh, of course, much of Ramdas's central theme since Be Here Now is about being in the moment. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, our true home is in the here and now. The past is already gone and the future is not here yet. It's not yet here. I have arrived. I am home in the here, in the now. And the practice is to be merged in the moment. So uh, Ram Dass talks about, I ask myself, how do I know there's something after death? And that's, uh, of course, what uh, much of this is about. I recognize that my faith rests in three sources, my own experiences, the views expressed by people whom I trust, know, and and extrapolation from the spiritual literature I have read. It is some combination of all these that seems to engender such conviction in me that all does not end. At the moment of death, and he says, "I honor my intuitive heart mind as a way of knowing," and of course, psychedelics comes in and out of it uh, is, a, is a part in it, as men, anybody who's done them would know. Um, you know, because uh, he talks about my personal experiences concern moving in and out of planes or states of consciousness in the course of exploring these states of consciousness, I've experienced time to time the shedding of my identity with body and personality. And that allows a state of awareness that feels to have little to do with birth or death, coming or going. And through intensive uh, meditation practice and work, my work with psychedelic chemicals, I have witnessed the manner in which the mind creates realities and have touched the domain that lies beyond thought. As a result, I've arrived at some intuitive understanding that is then corroborated by the other ways of knowing that were mentioned, aforementioned. So, uh, of course, this is... uh, I really have high expectations for this uh, retreat because of the kind of people who are involved to really help us get to a, a much less, at the very least, a less fearful place about the big bugaboo of transitioning and and death which we all have this fear of and uh, of course this the and the the way that we can witness and as he says and i just said it the manner in which the mind creates realities once we start to realize that and we touch that place even for a few seconds, that is beyond mind, it can go a long way to changing our relationship with this fear. So, this is a, a very, very, of course, extraordinary place that we can uh, inhabit. So at one level, he says, you could say the spiritual work is the work of extricating you from being caught in your identification with your body and your personality in order to identify with your soul. And soul here, whatever you want to call it, Buddha mind, soul, it, it, it's, to me, there is only one place. You know, there's, a, uh, there's a, our incarnation that has karma, it has entity-ness, and it goes through births. Right, But there is something that is beyond mind, is beyond body. And the Hindus call it Atman, meaning that part of you is spiritual, true self. And uh, Buddha comes along and talks about Anatta, no, which means no self, and the ultimate place. So whatever it is that these different traditions call it, there is that place uh, that... Uh, goes through incarnation to incarnation shedding the karma that has been created by the identification in with our separate ego self and that is really the work and i, I love he talks about Uh, how the tree, he talks about a tree. Tree isn't busy experiencing treeness. It's pure awareness, but it's not self-conscious. That's the huge thing. It's in harmony with everything around it because it's part of everything around it. But it isn't busy, busy saying, I am part of everything around me. It doesn't say, I'm living in the Tao. It is the Tao. It's gone beyond dualism. That's the ultimate freedom. The freedom from time, space, locus, the freedom from dualism, and to enter into that awareness or Buddha mind or Christ consciousness, whatever you want to call it, it's no longer experiential, and that is the most difficult thing. You know, when we think of this, because we our whole world is based on moment to moment experiencer. It's a lot of work we got to do here everybody. Die in the morning so you don't need to die at night. In other words, die, now from, die from your attachments now so that when you physically die, you won't die. That's no death, no fear. Hmm? And the bottom line is just this. The web in which you live enmeshes you Keeping your body and your personality as real, to extricate yourself out of that, you use spiritual practices. So it's, it's that's all. I just did a, another po- a mind rolling podcast, by the way, for those of you who happen not to know it. I do a podcast called Mind Rolling. Have all sorts of amazing people that I chat with, hoping to elucidate these very same concepts in a way that can help us on a day-to-day basis. And I just talked about um, the fact that well, Maharaji said, Neem Karoli Bhava said to us, I've done everything for you. Now I leave the mind to you. So what do we do? He said, you do your practice and you wait for grace. And so, that's the essence for me, of what uh, what I could possibly share with another human being about what can we do about our predicament, you know. Uh, interesting. At the end of this uh, talk, Ramdas talks about um, many of us. Uh, some something happened somewhere along our lives, and you realize. You realize the game that we're caught in, and it's not really who we are. And you've been trying to figure. We've been trying to figure out how to become what we tasted. Like I said, it could be even for a few seconds beyond mind, into that freedom of spacious awareness. Ram Dass calls it loving awareness. So we continue to do this work and go sit with teachers do retreats etc etc and he said i think through all of this i'm still growing into the first psychedelic experience he said i had in 1961 i don't even think i've begun to realize what i knew at that moment and and as black elk said i saw more than i could know and i know more than i could speak i love that That that's so great so there you go um this is quite a talk uh, from Ramdas about what survives. And there's a wonderful story from uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba in here, which you will love. And again, I encourage you to sign up for the live stream from Maui, May 4th through 6th. Go to ramdas.org forward slash fearless. And Ramdas, Krishnas Roshi, Joan Halifax, Frank Ostiseski, Robert Thurman, and me and Duncan. It's sort of a weird addition, but it works. Okay. All right. From Ramdas here and now, uh, we will see you. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, and we have this plethora of incredible podcasts. Ram, Ram.
1: What exists after death? Isn't that interesting to you? Is it interesting to you or not? Yeah, well, it was interesting to me. I'm at a choice point now. um, Because I just, my mind just clicked into, uh, there's some really nice material I'd like to share with you. There's two pieces here. One of them is a letter and my answer to the letter of a man whose son died a 24 year old son died and i wrote to him about death and the other is an article that i just wrote called what survives for a book where somebody asked me to write an article on what survives it's a book called a book called what survives so i'm going to read you the what survives because that's most direct and today it just feels like a no-nonsense morning to me for some reason <laughs> i mean I, I don't feel like emotionally buttering you up i just feel like being straight with you is this? I figure you deserve it. I mean, you came all the way here. The following story was told to me by an Indian man some years ago about my guru, Neem Karoli Baba. This is a story that those of you that know Miracle of Love will remember. Once in Bumiyadar, where Baba was staying the night, this is a quote from an Indian. We had all taken our evening meal and had retired at 10.30 p.m., Around 1 a.m., Baba started yelling that he was very hungry and that he must have dal and chapatis. Dal is lentils, I don't know. I awoke and reminded him that he had already eaten, but he insisted he must have dal and chapatis. Who can understand the ways of such a being? So I woke Brahmachari Baba, who was the priest, the pujari, and he built a fire and prepared the food. It was ready about 2 a.m., and we watched Baba consume the food with great appetite. Then we all retired again. At about 11 a.m. the next morning, a telegram arrived saying that one of Baba's old devotees had died in a village down on the plains about 150 miles away the previous night at 2 a.m. When the telegram was read to Baba, he said, you see, that's why I needed dal and chapatis. This aroused our curiosity because we didn't see it all. (laughs) We pressed him, but he would say nothing more. Finally, after two or three days of our persistence, he said, Don't you see? He, the man who died, had been wishing for chapatis and dal, and I didn't want him to carry that desire on through death for it would affect a future birth. Can you hear that? This story reflects a view of life and death that I have lived with for the past 28 years. I ask myself, how do I know there is something after death? I recognize that my faith rests in three sources. My own experiences, the views expressed by people whom I trust know, such as the story above, I trust my guru knows, An extrapolation from the spiritual literature that I've read. It is some combination of all these that seems to engender such conviction in me that all does not end at the moment of death. My personal experiences concern moving in and out of planes or states of consciousness. In the course of exploring these altered states of consciousness, I have experienced from time to time the shedding of my identity with body and personality, thus allowing me to acknowledge a state of awareness that feels to have little to do with birth or death, coming or going. Through intensive meditation practice and my work with psychedelic chemicals, I have witnessed the manner in which the mind creates realities and have touched the domain which lies beyond thought. As a result, I have arrived at some intuitive understanding that is then corroborated by the other ways of knowing that I mentioned above. It is obvious that the conclusions I'm going to present about what happens after death, I do not know in the usual scientific sense that prescribes the criteria for knowing we know. In fact, it is only because, and this is a key thing for this weekend, it is only because I listen to and honor my intuitive heart-mind as a way of knowing, that I honor my own intuitive heart-mind as a way of knowing even though it is not open to the criteria of public reproducibility, that I've had available to me abundant information about the after-death states. I've noticed that as a result of these personal experiences, along with the opportunities I've availed myself to hang out with associates, satsang or sangha, and literature that supports such experiences, my own fears about death have been deeply allayed. As a result of this, I have been able to work with the dying and bring to them qualities of equanimity and peace in the face of the unknown that have seemed to serve them well. At those moments of being with a person that is approaching death, I find that only truth works. And so I am forced to examine and re-examine the depths of the truth of my faith in my understanding of life after death. This, then, is the crucible through which what I am going to share has passed. you understand that crucible, that fire? that when you're with somebody that is dying, you can't bullshit them. I mean, you watch what happens when a minister or a rabbi or a priest comes in to see somebody that's dying and gives them a set of beliefs that are not things that are true to their own heart. That belief, when you hold a belief that isn't burned through you into faith, it's something that comes transmitted with fear. No matter how good you are about it, It is transmitted with fear. And that fear is what's conveyed to a person. And the person that's dying knows that fear. So what you can offer to a person that's dying is your own truth. Even saying, I'm afraid, that's truthful. And that's at least offering truth to the person. Not nothing to be afraid of when you're afraid. That's cutting them off from another human heart. Can you hear that one? I'm a little uncomfortable about being so heavy today. But... But if it's not bothering you, I'll go on. Okay. No, I know I'm beautiful and wonderful, That's not the, I, but I do appreciate the feedback, just to make sure I'm not losing it. Because I live with my own you know, place so much that it's hard to know what's out there. <laughs> but after all, you're me, so if I... Oh, At the moment of death, the thought forms to which we are attached determines what happens next. As my guru once said, I hope with some humor, if you desire a mango at the moment of death, you'll be born an insect. (laughs) If you even desire the next breath, you'll take birth again. Got that one? It is because of this immediate effect that in countries that believe in reincarnation, there is so much attention paid to preparing for the moment of death. The Tibetans, for example, describe how not to get stuck in the feeling of heaviness when the earth element leaves, or the experience of dryness when the water element leaves, like I'm thirsty, or the experience of coldness when the heat element leaves. Or the feeling that the outbreath is longer than the in-breath when the air element leaves. Just think of when I was working with somebody that was dying last night, I, yesterday. I was on the phone with her. and Or oh, the day before I was with her. Was yesterday she was too close to death. And talking with her she was saying, I'm so thirsty. And I kept saying, it's just the water element leaving. Just notice it. Don't busy, be busy being thirsty. And she could hear it, and she could let go at that moment. We can speak about what of the individual passes through the veil of physical death and call it a soul. We can do this even though we may understand that the soul itself is but a subtler thought form that eventually dissolves as the fullness of the Buddhist term, anatta, or no-self, is realized. What it ultimately dissolves into is beyond words to describe. There are many fingers that point towards this ultimate truth, using words like God, or nirvana, or formless, but these are only fingers and words, for the human knowing mind must be left behind when one dies into the ultimate truth. For most of us on the evolutionary journey, We we need not worry or hope at the moment about dissolving into nothingness. In other words, don't worry about it, because if you're worried about it, you can hear the predicament. If you say, I don't want to dissolve, that means you're clinging, and if you're clinging, you won't. Dissolving into nothingness. For most of us have sufficient karma, meaning inertia of past attachments left, that we as souls can expect to transmigrate across many births yet to come. I I used to think back in the 60s, Tim Leary and I had a chart on the board of how soon everybody would get enlightened, meaning like Buddha or like Christ. And it was like 10 years was the outset, you know. I mean, that was the longest you'd expect because it was going to start and then it would go on so fast. It was slightly naive. And recently when I was sitting in a meditation course with Upendita again about two months ago at at Barry, Massachusetts, and... um, he had just given, it was the day before I was to leave, and he had just given a lecture in which the Buddha went through Buddhahood for so many thousands of incarnations to realize the fullness of the Arahant state, the fully realized one, where when he died, when they said, where will you go when you die, he says, where does the fire go when the fuel is used up? Okay. In other words, it just just disappears. The next day, Upendita said to me, I said, I'm leaving. And Upandita did the same thing he did to me in Burma. He said, don't go. You're at a very critical point. And I said, you said that to me last time. <laughs> I said, it sounds like a routine. <laughs> I said, I've got to go. I've got to save a board meeting. And it's very important. We're busy doing good. And he said, <laughs> he says, don't you understand? He said the same thing again. And I said, well, I'll tell you. I said, I don't think I'm going to get enlightened this birth. And there was a stillness in the room. It was like I had given up. I said, I've developed patience. And I said, I'm perfectly relaxed to just do my practices because I'm doing my practices, because I'm doing my practices. And what will happen will happen. And so you can't suck me in with promises that it'll all happen right away because I'm in no rush. So I'm going to go. And they all looked at me like, poor Ram Dass. He, he just doesn't understand the preciousness of a human, you know, how hard you should work. Okay. At the mind moment after death, This is the mind moment. See, moments are mind moments, like moment, 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 moment. At the mind moment after death, what one experiences is a function of one's evolution as a soul. This evolution is most clearly reflected in the quality of the manifestation of the life one is just completing. A human birth is a bit like enrolling in the fourth grade. This is Emmanuel material. We stay just long as is necessary to achieve what the soul needs from that specific grade. And then we're naturally ready to go on for further evolution by leaving that life. The soul leaves the physical plane neither a moment too early nor a moment too late. That's a really interesting one, because every one of you has gotten sucked into, he died so young, or it's too bad that baby died, as if there was an era in which you're saying, if I were God, I wouldn't have screwed up. You really screwed up, God. Would you do better in the future? let's keep everybody alive longer and longer because we're afraid of death. That's wonderfully what we're saying. The soul leaves the physical plane neither a moment too early nor a moment too late. Maharaji once said to KK, jump into the water, and KK says, I can't swim. Maharaji says, don't worry. He said, if it's not your moment of death, you could jump off that bridge and you wouldn't die. And if it is, don't worry, it wouldn't matter anyway, so... How it leaves, how we leave when we leave this physical plane, this veil of tears. How we leave is a part of the soul's curriculum. Suicide, AIDS, cancer, run over by a car. This girl came up to called me the other a couple of months ago, and she said, um, she said, I just wanted to tell you my father just died. He got um, run. Over, he got hit by a car. He was crossing the street, and he got hit by a car. And I, I, my heart's very close to him, and I'm not feeling anything, but I'm going to New York for the funeral. I said, okay. I said, don't write the script. Just stay open to what happens. You don't have to have any special feeling. How do you know what feeling you're supposed to have? She called the next day, and she was sobbing. And I thought, boy, that happened fast. And she said, my cat died. I said, yes, yeah. she said, it had a heart attack. I thought, bizarre, her father got run over and her cat had a heart attack. I mean, that is really a far out situation. (laughs) And what it takes with it as it leaves is the essence of what that life has been about. An essence that the soul knows, even though the brain that fosters thought has been left behind. See, if you think you're your brain, just think of after you die when the ants come in. And they eat all your brain. You know, yum, yum, yum. Good nerve cells. And then where are you? If you were your brain, that's it. I mean, what could be left? And it's interesting because when the spiritual teachers like Ramana Maharshi or other beings talk about it being a place in the heart, they're not talking about the physical heart. They're talking about a place. He says it's the size of a thumb and it's just to the right of the sternum and stuff like that. They're talking about a a spiritual entity, and then the question is what does that take from a human birth? It takes something from the human birth even though all the stuff you knew you knew. Then the interesting question is, was the brain merely the reflection of that deeper knowing or was that where you really knew everything? Can you hear that issue? See there's a way of understanding the relation of the brain to the soul. In which, as you go in deeper and deeper to your deepest truth, you end up, the fact is you are the universe, and therefore you know everything. Because you're one with it all, you know it in the same way as you know how to make a fist. It's just you. You are the trees, and you're all of it. There's only one of it when you get to awareness. It's only when you come down into your separateness that there's something other than you, so you're busy not knowing it. It's like Einstein said, I didn't arrive at my understanding of the fundamental laws of the universe through my rational mind. He did it by going into a place where he was those laws and then coming back into his mind to describe what he then knew he knew. Can you hear that? So it, it relegates the... the the neural analytic mind to a different role. It's more a role of bringing into manifestation on this plane wisdom than of the holder of the wisdom. Okay, I'm just trying to play with these issues because they're issues that many of us maybe you never think about them, I do. (laughs) For those young souls who are deeply entrenched in attachment to the physical body They die into a subtle physical sheath in which they experience a type of sleep mixed with some confusion. Their identification with gross materiality of body makes them ill-prepared to recognize that they are still here after they have died. Thus the confusion and some feeble attempts to carry on as if they were alive. I suspect that they are quite surprised when nobody on the physical plane notices them. You've heard, you've read stories probably of somebody dying and they come and they walk into the room and they say, hi, everybody, and everybody who acts as if they're gone says, oh, so-and-so died, saying, no, I'm here, and I'm here. It's just that they're not seeable because the eyes of the other person are tuned to seeing the physical, psychological planes, not the plane on which they're still existing. So they don't exist for the other person. Thus, the confusion and some feeble attempt to carry on as if they were still alive. I suspect that they are quite surprised when nobody notices them. These beings are then quite unconsciously reprogrammed by the inertia of their karma. It's a sort of a psychic DNA into the next birth. In other words, you sort of go into a stuporous state in which you're kind of confused because you're still here, but you thought you were your body, and your body's dead, and you can't figure. You don't have a context to understand where you are any longer. I mean, if you thought you were something and then you're not that but you're still here, what do you do? So a real materialist has a hell of a time at that moment. And usually what they do is it's so thick they go unconscious and then they're sort of reprogrammed by the inertia of their DNA and then at at the appropriate moment they just take another birth to go on with the work. Those with extreme physical attachments, usually through greed or anger, if you have real anger or real greed, hang around and are what are sometimes experienced by others as ghosts or poltergeists. That is, I'm not leaving there. And they just hang around. And it's my house. You get out. I'm giving you really far out weird stuff now. Some of you say, I didn't come for this. I came for... As the soul evolves further... It succeeds by the end of its incarnation on earth to have awakened sufficiently to its predicament to extricate itself from one or more of its sheets or veils. A soul at this level of evolution immediately realizes at the moment after death that it has died. Oh, I died. It experiences itself expanding as it is freed from the container of incarnation. A spirit guide emmanuel describes the experience as being similar to the taking off of a tight shoe. It's like, whew, wow. Because you realize that all that conceptual stuff your mind did of oh, this is me also said this is not me. And so you kept cramming what you were, which is this, into this, and you've gone around like this. Hi, I'm me. See, this is me. How do you do? I'm Richard. You're not Bob? No, I'm Richard. And then you die and you go, and there you are. The soul may tarry for a period of time as it feels caught between, on the one hand, its delight in release from incarnation, and at the same time, the pulls of attached love to those whom it has left behind. But after some time, it understands the way things must be. The way things must be and alone or with guidance from other beings continues into another realm. And that's why when you're with somebody that has lost a loved one, it's important, not important, but it's useful to tell them to talk to the person, to complete your business with them, and to let them go, to invite them to go on with their work, and that you'll be okay and you'll make it. Because if you keep pulling upon them, it's difficult for them to go and do what they got to do because they love you so much until they've been able to see through the predicament, which they can because they have more consciousness than they had when they were in their bodies. What's fun is when somebody dies that you never could talk to about spiritual things because they couldn't hear, and now you know they can hear, and you got them, you know? You sit down with a candle and you light a candle and you say, okay, now you understand. See, I was right, see? (laughs) And they're laughing and saying he'll find out. (laughs) The soul may pass into a mental realm if that is where its attachment lies, or into a vital or emotional realm. These are all often called astral realms, or in Mahayana Buddhism, the bardos, or islands in between. In dying into these realms, the soul may retain consciousness and experience the realm in some detail passing through tunnels of light, being filled with immense joy and profound love, meeting beings in subtle light bodies who are familiar to the soul, realms of color, sound, etc., are all examples of experiences the soul may have at this level of evolution. Now, you, you see the predicament. What I'm trying to convey to you is that a lot of the books you read that describe what happens after death are really describing a certain plane for evolution. Like there was a guy, Arthur Ford, who was a psychic, and he died and he, he, he uh, sent a book through Ruth Montgomery, who was another psychic, about what happens on the other side. And what he described on the other he said, we're at school and we're learning things. He described just what he expected would happen from this side, because you see how it works. Since there are an infinite number of planes, you create whatever plane you thought you were going to have, and you people it just like you're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you missed it, I can't help it. It's <laughs> After some time in such a realm, the soul alone, or with the help of guides, reflects upon its past karmic journey. See, now, at the more levels, higher levels of evolution, the soul is part of the reflection, because there's a part of the soul that's aware, so it's understanding its predicament. So that between births now, you're understanding your predicament, rather than at the lower incarnations where you're just automatically being reprogrammed as a result of these reflections, prepares and programs itself for its next incarnation. For a yet more evolved soul, who at the time of death has broken the identification with its subtle bodies, it may with full consciousness pass through the doorway of death into the higher or causal realms like the Brahma fields and remain in the subtlest essence form for some time in its journey. See that, that a really conscious being that is not attached to body and not attached to personality, as it all dissolves. It's like Ramana Maharshi when everybody said, they cried, Bhagwan, Bhagwan, don't leave us, don't leave us. And he looked at them, he says, don't be silly, where could I go? It's just my body that's dying. And his body dies, and it's just like getting out of your car. You don't go, oh my God, I'm getting out of my car. You just get out of your car. You don't lose your consciousness as you get out of your car. You don't lose your consciousness, because... You're, you're not identified with the car. You're not confused. There's no confusion. There's not even any subtle Fordness or about you. I mean, you're just really free of it. There is confusion in my mind as to whether a soul must incarnate in a physical birth before its final liberation from the illusion of separateness. In other words, you may have to come back into a physical birth for the final round. Some traditions say you do and some say you don't, and I have no idea what that is. Perhaps the final work can be accomplished on other realms, perhaps not. At this stage of my development, I just don't know. Okay, I won't read any more of that. So at one level, you could say that the spiritual work is the work of extricating you from being caught in your identification with your body and your personality in order to allow you to identify with your soul, which is something that has karma, it has a, an entity-ness, and it goes through births. Because the whole idea of reincarnation is all another creation of mind. Reincarnation is just as much a dream or illusion as anything else. It's just stuff. It's the stuff of, it's the play of form. It's the play of form. But now to understand the term anatta. See, in in Hinduism, they talk about the atma and the jivatma, meaning that part of you that is the spiritual true self, the wisdom that's inside each person. And the jivatman is the individual one. And then the Buddha comes along and talks about anatta, meaning no atma. In other words, the ultimate place which is called nibbana or nirvana is where even the subtle consciousness, the clinging of awareness to a vantage point of seeing, which is dualism, so seeing and that which is seen, or experiencing and that which is experienced, the clinging to being an experiencer dissolves. The two come together. In the same way as the tree isn't busy experiencing its treeness; it is pure awareness, but it is not self-conscious. It is in harmony with everything around it because it's part of everything around it, but it isn't busy saying, I am part of everything around me. It doesn't say, I am living in the Tao. It is the Tao. It's gone beyond dualism. That is the ultimate freedom, the freedom from any time-space locus, the freedom from dualism. to enter into awareness which is, or the Buddha mind, or Christ consciousness, or whatever you want to call, that is no longer experiential. You're no longer, it's like when people say, I experienced emptiness, I say, keep going. Because experiencing emptiness isn't the same as being emptiness. Experiencing emptiness is still dualism. That's still a plane in which you experience emptiness. Experiencing rapture, bliss, all of these things are dualistic things. And dualism takes you right up to the relation. This is where, and we're going to talk about different paths. And the devotional path we'll talk about, because that works with dualism. And it's a very good reason why, and I'll explain that later on. But I'm just giving you the, the whole range now, that the ultimate game of liberation, which is why it's so scary, is that at the end of it, everything you were isn't, and yet, You are everything, Kalu Rinpoche. Who was I? uh, uh, He was one of my teachers. He was an absolutely beautiful, beautiful Tibetan Lama, a very, very evolved Lama. And he died about two, three months ago. And he said, "You are this is paraphrase. You are living in illusion." But there is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you see that you are nothing, no thing, nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. He says, that's all there is to it. Can you hear that? I mean, that's so, that's so precise. You are an illusion, but there is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, in other words, when you realize, when you become a realized being, when you have realized the truth, you realize you're nothing. Being nothing, you are everything. Because you're everywhere. Because you're no thing. You're not a thing as opposed to something else. You're it all. Being everything... That's all there is to it. That's what God is. So, now let me ask you which journey did you want? When you came here this weekend, did you come prepared to let go? Did you come prepared to go on this journey that is what the human incarnation is about from where I'm sitting? How much do you want? 10% 30% 80% you want to go for broke? Do you see the predicament? The web in which you live enmeshes you keeping your body and your personality as real. To extricate yourself out of that, you use spiritual practices. Some of the spiritual practices take you as far as the soul. Some of the spiritual practices take you as far as the soul and then take you beyond the soul, in which you let go of the soul. All spiritual practices go to the same place. They just go by different routes because different strokes for different folks. But do you hear how the way in which you are living in the universe now must be transformed for you to recognize who you in truth are? Everything must go, major clearance sale. as they say, die in the morning so you need not die at night. In other words, die now. Die from your attachments now so that when you physically die, you won't die. That's the whole idea of Eastern spiritual techniques is to have prepared you so that at the moment of death you're not busy being somebody that dies because if you're busy being somebody that dies, you're going to go around again. And from the broader point of view, the game is there is a wheel and the game is to get off the wheel. That's what it's about because the wheel is called the wheel of suffering because as long as you're clinging anywhere, there is suffering. We're going to talk about that more later because that's the justification for doing the game. Otherwise, what are you doing it for? Why would you be on the spiritual trip anyway? A lot of you are wondering, why am I or why am I? See, many of you are on it because something happened to you somewhere along in your life and you realize that the game you were caught in was a game you were caught in. That it wasn't who you really are. And you've been trying to figure out how to to become what you tasted, what you knew. That's what I would say three quarters of the people in this room, like me. I think I am still growing into the first psychedelic experience I had in 1961. I don't think I've even begun to realize what I knew at that moment. As Black Elk said, I saw more than I could know, I know more than I can speak.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.